Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Jim Doton to the show. Jim is a licensed professional geologist with 36 years of experience in the environmental field. In addition to his undergraduate degree in geology, Jim has a Master of Business Administration and a Master of Science in Environmental Policy and Management. Jim spent a year in Afghanistan with the Army National Guard as a hydrologist on an agri-business development team. It was during this time that he first looked at biochar to improve soil health. Jim is currently the Carbon Sequestration Program Manager with the city of Minneapolis. Jim, how are you doing today? Doing wonderful today, Raj. I appreciate the invitation. Jim, I'm looking forward to digging to your story. Before we start chatting about biochar, there's something I'd like to ask you. It might sound strange, but I'm just curious. You served in the National Guard. Now, I've heard the terms, to be honest, hundreds of times, but I don't know what the National Guard does. Can you share what it does and your experience in the National Guard? Yes, uh, it's related to the both the Army and Air Force. Uh, they don't have a, na- a Navy National Guard, but it re- goes back to the days of the Revolutionary Period and before in the, the colonial militias that were used dur- during the Revolution. But it's a state function where govern- govern- the governor of the state runs the National Guard, but it also serves underneath the Army and during times of crisis or war or a national emergency, the federal government can bring up the National Guard and incorporate it into the regular army. And that's how I ended up in Afghanistan and discovering the field of biochar in the first place. Now let's go to Afghanistan. Thank you for the explanation. Let's move on to Afghanistan. I looked at your bio. You were there in 2012. You mentioned the National Guard being under the Army and Air Force. What role did the National Guard play in Afghanistan? One of the the things, we said there's regular army, army reserve, and National Guard. And the regular army can't handle their function, uh, keep the full-time staff necessary to do this. So part-time staff helps a lot. One of the things that's good about the Army Reserve and the National Guard is the suite of civilian skills that its members have. They're not just doing a full-time career in the military. They have the military skills, but also bring, can bring civilian skills to it. In my particular case, I'm a hydrogeologist. By, tra- by training, I'm a professional geologist, and they needed a hydrologist to look at water issues on the, on the uh, deployment I was at. So I was brought up for my, not for my military schools, but for my civilian skills. Now, That's one exactly- of the unique things about the reserve forces. Now, what exactly is a geohydrologist? What we do is take a look at the occurrence of movement of direct groundwater, and uh, that includes not only quantities and, and such, but uh, for water supply, 
But what I worked on was contamination in the groundwater and looking at the movement, occurrence and movement of contamination in groundwater, whether it be chlorinated solvents, petroleum, or other related issues, and then also how to uh, uh, define it and clean it up if necessary. And I might assume where some of these contaminants come from, runoff, uh, fertilizer, etc., but where else do contaminants in the groundwater come from? We saw a big surge in petroleum contamination related to underground storage tanks in the 1980s when they began replacing old tanks, leaking underground storage tanks. The other one, it was uh, former dry cleaning, manufacturing, etc., for chlorinated solvents. And uh, they're quite different in their occurrence and movement in groundwater between those two major classes of chemicals. And they represent probably 90% or better of the groundwater contaminants of concern that we were looking at. Now, we're going to take a very scenic route in this conversation. What are your current concerns right now about groundwater in the U.S. specifically? One of the big things is that we've got a lot of the petroleum issues resolved. Uh, Taking a look at, we have uh, an idea on the chlorinated solvents and luckily taken steps to prevent future contamination, but they they are quite long-lived. The new emerging concern are the PFAS, the per- and polyfluorochlorocarbons that uh, we see in the news quite a bit, the forever chemicals. And that one, they're finding health risks at very, very low levels and very difficult to define and clean up. And the other one that we're seeing emerging are some of the, taking a look at some of the other even naturally occurring metals such as arsenic and uh, lead. Is the arsenic or are the arsenic and lead coming from old infrastructure projects? A lot of what we'd seen originally for the lead contamination was from leaking leaded gasoline, and it doesn't leave the system. What lead goes down, gasoline itself may break down in in a matter of decades. Lead will persist and keep moving through there. The other one we see has is uh, atmospheric deposition of leaded lead in from gasoline in soil and its subsequent movement into the underlying groundwater or contaminating soils above ground that people encounter. The other major source of lead that we see, but it's mainly in the soil, is from lead paint uh, from aging infrastructure, aging housing stock. And do you know if there are any mitigation plans or programs to address some of these issues? Well, that's one of the curious things in working with biochar. I'm, I'm looking at ways that you can't take lead out. You can physically remove it and isolate it but it's an element in itself. It doesn't break down or move, but looking at the chemical form or the mineral form in the soil, what we're trying to look at is are there ways using biochar and compost to change the mineral structure of the lead into a more stable form, a phosphate form, that the body cannot absorb, so reducing the bioaccessibility. So if it is ingested, it just passes through the system without absorption. Very interesting. You mentioned biochar and your introduction to biochar in Afghanistan. Can you share how you came about being introduced to biochar? Yes, I was, uh, as I said, a hydrogen or hydrologist in Afghanistan working on an agribusiness development team. And I was outside the wire in the villages probably every other day looking at uh, the crops and looking at the water supply and looking at the soils. And then I developed up plans for the government how to train the Afghan government in, in addressing these issues for their, their population. One of the things I saw was the soil was extremely depleted and very low in organic carbon. 
the crops were not uh, thriving. And we can water, there, there was a water shortage, but it wasn't as critical as the soil issues and the lack of uh, nutrients and ability to uh, the, the fertility of the soil. So I was exploring ways to restore the soil carbon and, and soil health. Um, and I came across doing the research on it, looking at biochar and using agriculture residue, which they did have, and how to convert that into a stable carbon that in turn can be used with uh, compost or the fertilizer that they did receive in order to improve the long-term health of the soil and reduce the food insecurity and resulting security of the nation. What kind of agricultural residue were they using? The province I was located, I was in, was a place called Z- uh, Zabel Province, and it was based out of the town of Kalat, the capital pro- province, capital of the province Kalat. But uh, this was right on the Pakistan border and had the highway leading from Kandahar to Kabul ran through there, and so it was really, really good for security, really necessary for security. Because of the lack of water, they didn't grow their own wheat, but what they did grow our grapes and almonds, among other crops that they then sold to Pakistani traders or in order to get money, in order to buy flour to eat. But uh, one of the things that they, we need, needed to do is increase their, the health of the, of the crops and the volume of the crops in order to increase their security. And that's where I was looking at but the biochar is using, the, particularly the almond waste, the husks limbs, et cetera, as well as the prunings from the grape vines as a woody feedstock or, uh, that has the uh, lignin that's necessary to make a good long-term stable biochar. Now, what is the process for making biochar? Well, biochar is just taking waste biomass and heating it in the absence of oxygen. It's a specialty type of charcoal. In particular, you can either put it in a batch and a retort and evacuate the uh, air or just seal it off so there's no air and heat it from the outside. Instead of combusting, the gases, instead of burning, are driven off and used to fuel the process. You, you light it outside the container. Or it can be a continuous process where it's fed through an auger or other system and continuously working through as opposed to one batch. But heating it up, driving those volatiles off instead of burning them and uh, heating it from the outside, it changes the structure of not all of the carbon, but a lot of the carbon. Instead of going into ash and carbon dioxide, a lot of it is stabilized into a crystalline form that's recalcitrant and can stay in the soil from anywhere from hundreds to thousands of years. And what benefit does biochar bring to the soil? From what we were looking at, there's two things with biochar is that uh, two main factors are feedstock and temperature, but we're looking at woody feedstock, which in my opinion provides the best biochar for soil health and getting at the temperatures where you get a good stable carbon, but still interactive with the soil. So medium temperatures, as we call it. And what it does, it absorbs nutrients from fertilizer from the soil or compost holds on to it and keeps it available for the plant so that the plant, if the plants can u- use it, it also retains water. So the water that you use is more effective. It keeps available for the plant and reduces the drought stress. Uh, one of the other things it does, we find, is that it interacts with the microbes and the fungus in the soil in increasing the cap- capacity of those uh, systems 
to increase plant growth. So we, what we see is a real big, a large increase in the microbial community, in the root systems, and resulting in better above ground mass as well, including increase in quality and uh, quantity of the fruits or, or vegetables you're trying to grow. Does putting biochar in the soil also help with soil erosion runoff? Yes, it does. And one of the things it does, it can help reduce soil compaction. It reduces the bulk density and increases infiltration of water. And you said the biochar then holds on to a lot of that, that, lot of that water. And it also restores what's called tilth or that the aggregate formation. So the, the, uh, and also by increasing that live root within there, uh, although those factors work together to help reduce erosion at the surface. Now, how long did you work on this project in Afghanistan? I just started working on it. I was a set of hydrologists working on irrigation and then by chance also working on a, uh, uh, Asian bee project instead of using the European bees. So that was uh, what he's primarily working on. I began working on it in the last three months of my, of my tour there. So developing up the concept and models, and then I passed that information on to the following team. They weren't able to capitalize on it because they were pulled out during the drawdown. However, when I came back to Minneapolis, I was able to use this knowledge that I gained overseas with the city of Minneapolis. So before we get to Minneapolis, let's cap off our story in Afghanistan. Do you have any other learnings while working with the Afghani people? Yes, is the biggest one. The biggest mistake we saw a lot of people make, not necessarily our group, but in general, is that coming in there as the experts, knowing everything, and uh, they just be really good to learn it from us. One of the big things I learned is they knew a lot about what they were doing, as well as their culture, how, how you approach it. They work with things at the village and tribal level. Where do you inter- how do you interact with them, help them influence, and help them make the decisions for themselves rather than telling them what you need to do? A far higher chance that they will take the advice if they're seen, if seen as peers and also working with the Afghan government to present it so it's Afghan to Afghan. So really respecting the culture and how they do business was, or how they, they uh, interact, it was huge. And rather than it as approaching it, as I am an American and I know better. <laughs> um, now, coming back stateside here to Minneapolis, you mentioned biochar. Can you share what you're currently doing in Minneapolis with biochar? Yes. Uh, so we were working on it. I've been working on demonstration projects with biochar since 2013, where I turned to the city. We ended up in the I ended up in the health department doing environmental regulatory work, but they found out the work that I was doing in Afghanistan. Uh, they ended up putting bees on top of city hall as part of my bee work, but also they're curious about the biochar. So I got some biochar. Acquired it. Uh, we worked out a memorandum of understanding with the Shakopee, Metawakan, and Sioux community, which is uh, a federally recognized tribe outside of Minneapolis that has the largest organic recycling facility or compost facility in the state. So I moved my biochar over to the uh, Shakopee, Metawakan, and Sioux community's facility, and we made agreements to mix it with their compost and provide it to community garden groups within the cities, in particular to uh, those facing health disparities or economic disparities, starting with the urban Indian community in Minneapolis, uh, based on our relationship with the tribe. And how is that project going so far? 
Oh, it's it's been uh, an outstanding relationship. We've worked a lot with various community groups. Since then, we designated what are called green zones in the North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis area that are defined by uh, dem- demographics, income levels, the amount of uh, past environmental and just- justice issues, uh, lead health, lead paint, health issues in children, et cetera. And we have uh, north and south, uh, north and south green zones, and a lot of our work is with community groups that serve those communities. That project, those projects are going very well. Still working on the biochar that we had purchased and brought in, uh, but we've done additional work in urban forestry still in there, getting into stormwater work, and a lot with uh, transportation projects is one of the big issues we're working on now with medians and boulevards in ways to develop up uh, pollinator corridors and carbon sinks use and improve our infrastructure and reduce our maintenance costs. Where we're, where we're going now is that uh, we received a grant from Bloomberg Philanthropies, and this is they heard about the work we were doing with biochar. And in 2019, we were invited to Stockholm, Sweden, where the uh, city of Stockholm had received a grant from the Mayor's Challenge uh, a few years back. and they started biochar production, and they're trying to replicate this across the, the world. So this, Minneapolis was one of 14 cities invited globally, the only one from the United States, to visit it. However, coronavirus interrupted the plans there. But since then, they came out with another challenge, and Minneapolis, Lincoln, and Cincinnati were selected in the United States, and four other cities in Europe, in Finland, Stockholm, or Sweden, Norway, and Germany were also selected in order to replicate the uh, Stockholm experience. So we just started that uh, a few weeks ago, the press release came out, so we were able to, you know, no longer under embargo to discuss it. So I just started my new job as carbon sequestration program manager in order to get local biochar production underway in Minneapolis. That's a great title. Yeah, that's, uh, it was interesting. I didn't pick it myself, but it, it does fill the bill. <laughs> Now, going back to the Sioux community, can you share what the Three Sisters planting technique is? Yes, that was one of the interesting aspects on this is uh, SMSC, or the Shakopee Medawak Sioux community, they are a, a Dakota or, you know, older name is Sioux uh, community, but they don't look at, it's a small tribe with a large casino and large resources, but they don't want to just spend it on themselves. They, they really take the seven generations ethos of helping the gener- their generations as well as helping other Native American communities regardless of tribes or tribal affiliation in their area. We have a large Ojibwe population in the state, but in Minneapolis, we have the only HUD Native American preference community. I've been working with them on their, com- I've worked with them on their community garden to help them grow uh, native seed lines that were pre-contact seed lines for European contact that were preserved at various reservations across the upper Midwest. And there's another site as well, the Meshkika Gitagon, uh, which is across the Indian Health Board. Again, it was done this to restore native traditions, native diets, and native culture to help them uh, rebuild spiritual health and, and uh, as well as their physical health. The Three Sisters takes native corn, which is a seven-row seven corn, uh, Oneida corn it's called, and Ariska beans 
and uh, huduka, I, I, I don't want to screw up the name, but it's another type of squash. The corn is placed in the cardinal, each cardinal direction in a mound, so one north, one south, east, and west. Around the, the stalks of beans, or the beans, are placed with the, around the corn, so that as the corn, or corn grows, the stalks use the corn as a trellis and grow up. And they help also, as you know, restore nitrogen to the soil, which is corn is quite a nitrogen-hungry uh, material and usually one of the limiting factors. The, the squash is placed around that mound and grows to, and smothers, naturally smothers the weeds. So that's the three sisters are the corn, squash, and beans. And we said it's all done with pre-European contact seed lines preserved at the, through the reservation system. The Native American community is they're 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 addressing they have health issues with uh, high levels of obesity and diabetes. A lot of it related to the uh, Western diet and what was provided to, for them. And this is helping some address some of those health issues directly, as well as the spiritual regrowth and connection with the soil, which was disrupted. That is super interesting. How have they preserved these pre-contact seed lines? It was kept uh, when they were moved onto the reservations. They brought the seeds with them and then kept growing them within their own community on the reservation over the decades. And it's a community they link up with other members, uh, other reservations, whether it's within their affiliation within the Ojibwe or others across North Dakota, and trade these seeds in order to keep those, those cultural roots associated with uh, the tribe and their, their traditional foods and going back to their traditional grow, growing methods. The biochar mimics what the, we would roughly call slash and burn. What they did is take crop residue, lay it down, and smoldered it on top of the fields to restore the carbon to the soil. So it's a looser method of, of, of biochar where you're returning it in a, in a charcoal-like form instead of just burning it into ash. So it mimics that in a more efficient way to restore the soil carbon, but respecting that traditional approach to uh, the slash and burn techniques for growing that they used in, in the past. They recognize the value of carb returning the carbon to the soil. Do they have their own version of a seed bank? Yes, they do, but I, I don't want to speak too much about it because I'm not that familiar with it. Uh, how they relate to it between uh, tribes or between reservations but I know it's available, and, and uh, those seed lines are cult now cultivated and maintained within each reservation. I don't know if there's a central repository, but it is interesting how they, they promote those things and uh, what they call food sovereignty. So trying to restore native uh, ways, native food, you know, food, et cetera, using these pre-contact seed lines to uh, you know, restore their, their culture, so, so to speak. That really is amazing. Now, I see that you're also planning to work on a district heating project with biochar. How does that work? Well, that's what we're originally hoping to do is taking a look at a, uh, uh, the building, a private enterprise is building a food hall and apartment building near the university. And as part of it, they're going to put in what's called a, a district heating system. It's, it's an aquifer thermal energy storage system. It's uh, more widely known in Europe and particularly the Netherlands, but this would have been the first one in the United States that was like this, where you drink, dig or build deep wells to the deeper aquifers, pull water out, uh, apply heat, 
get excess heat, in this case, the excess heat from biochar, heat the water, put it back in the ground, and during the wintertime, heating season, you pull the water back out and extract that heat in order to reduce the amount of uh, fossil fuels needed to heat the building. And then similarly, in the summertime, it's cooled as you extract the heat. It puts, puts back down to the ground and it returned later up is to help with cooling. That project is currently on hold. The apartment building is going forward. The Aquifer Thermal Energy Storage System is currently on hold. Uh, we're hoping to hook up with that later. But in the interim, uh, in order to get production down, we are looking at another site where we're hoping to use it to the heat waste heat to heat uh, municipal buildings replace natural gas for the for, uh, for the waste heat, as well as water heating use, which is one of the large uses of uh, fossil fuels that the city has as part of our maintenance. And it looks like you're also looking to work on another project where you're using a biochar filter to remove E. coli from surface water? Yeah, that's... Uh, Actually, another engineering firm is working on that right now. I don't want to give uh, trade names or, or names away, but uh, have been looking at the watershed. And we're looking at within the city as well. We've got impaired streams with uh, where E. coli has been recognized as a pathogen exceeding our uh, ta- total maximum daily loads. We've shown, or It's been shown that biochar mixed with iron sand filters for the phosphorus are very effective in reducing phosphorus and E. coli. So we're looking at doing that along our waterways as well as exploring potential, its potential to reduce PFAS. Uh, we're just in the mode now to try to find out how, that, how well it would work, what type of biochar feedstock and temperatures would work for re- removing PFAS as well as E. coli. And then we're looking to work with pu- our public works office to get a demonstration project put up in the city. So it sounds like biochar is this miracle product and you've been on this journey for about 10 years now. What are some of the aha moments you've had on this 10-year journey? One of the big ones is that you can char anything. However, uh, the type of fe- the feedstock and the temperature you do it at is really key to making a good char. One of the aha moments I have is that there's a lot of products out there that are called biochar, but not necessarily good for the use that you're looking at. So matching up that feedstock and temperature regime, as well as particle size, with what you want to do, whether it's uh, dealing with soil health, removing contaminants, uh, if you're looking at nutrients, metals, uh, complex organic chemicals, it all takes a different type of biochar, as well as uh, how do you want to interact with the soil. If you're adding something to it, it takes another regime, temperature regime, to get to that uh, part. So rather than just saying the word biochar and applying it everywhere and seeing bad results, we're really focusing on to make sure that we have the right tool for the right application so that we can get this accepted as a mainstream practice, get its use uh, incorporated in, and not come out with a bad experience, which is one of the the big mistakes that we'd seen industry-wide with substandard product being put in wrong ways. So that, that to me, that was a really big aha moment to see using the right tool, the right char for the right to application. In your opinion, what is the ideal agricultural waste for soil remediation? For soil remediation, and in pretty much all cases, I recommend wood. 
uh, woody biochar, and depends on what you want to move. There, it's anywhere from a, a low temperature, which in biochar can be as low as 350, so right above torrefication. But uh, for me, it's about 350, 450 degrees C and up. But between 450 and 650, you could get most applications for nutrients and metals. Higher than that for complex organic compounds, potentially PFAS, but pesticides as well. And as well as that medium range can also get the E. coli. It, uh, it changes it. But really, the, for us, the long durable, if you're looking for carbon sequestration as well as the effects on it, you need the wood. It has the right, the right lignans in there that can change. into It's the aromatics and the lignans that form that nice, stable backbone, carbon backbone that lasts a long, long time, those, those hundreds to thousands of years. So uh, we've seen a lot of effort go into renewables such as switchgrass, macanthasis, uh, corn stover, et cetera. It can be charred. It makes a good uh, short-term agricultural char, but it doesn't have the legs because it lacks the lignans that need to convert for a, a good, stable product. So what is the feedstock then for the woody biochar? One of the things, there's been debates on between hard and soft woods. They both make a good char, and it's kind of a, a what do, what type of cola do you want? But we'll be having a mix of uh, feedstocks what we're coming in because we're looking at our large catchment area. However, we're go under, currently undergoing thermal ash borer, which is affecting our ash trees. Back in the 70s, we used to have in Minneapolis very large elm trees. That, that just made huge canopies over the boulevard area. Uh, that was taken out by the Dutch elm disease. And so we replaced those with a lot of ash trees. Since then, we have the emerald ash borer that's coming across. And once you get emerald ash borer, you're losing your ash trees. So in the next 10 years, we've been working with Minnesota Pollution Control Agency and others, our park board, et cetera, and other foresters is that our ash trees are going to be, forests are going to be decimated, and we have a very large ash population, and it's going to far exceed the capacity of the system, uh, be it the district energy system in St. Paul, uh, mulch, compost, etc., cetera, uh, to handle. So we're looking at a large part of the feedstock will likely be ash trees in the, for the next five to 10 years. Well, you mentioned 10 years. Let's jump into the future with your project that you're working on right now, if you had to turn in a report 10 years from now regarding this biochar project, what would be some of the wins you'd like to see? The wins I'd like to see is that this is developed up and accepted as a, as a mainstream process, and uh, it's something new and getting ad being adopted with by public works and other agencies as well as private use in landscaping, uh, community gardens, agriculture, etc. That would be a huge use for us. We're looking at uh, standardizing ways in order to do testing to predict the results as well as methods on how to use biochar for different applications so that uh, we can get under educate folks on how to use it properly and mainstreaming that process. The other thing is that this is accepted within industry as far as uh, taking some of the feedstock and converting it into biochar, and as well as seen as a carbon negative technology by uh, cities, counties, et cetera, as a way to meet your climate action goals. You can, as I was explained to you in, in Sweden by the, the Stockholm folks, is that it's hard to reach carbon neutrality if you don't have a component of carbon uh, drawdown or carbon negative. 
And that's what we're trying to do is establish this as a part of the climate action plans that is revenue neutral. It, it pays for itself. It's an established practice and it helps contribute to achieving our, car, our climate goals as a, a state and as a city. Sounds like a beautiful goal. My last question, you know, you took the scenic route, 2012, Afghanistan, getting introduced to biochar, becoming what I would consider to be an expert in biochar. If you could share some words of advice, recommendations, could be professional or personal with the audience, what would it be? One of the things that I've I started out is it's easy to see what someone else has done and do and repeat that. But for me, I have had my greatest professional and private success in seeing opportunities where others see others see problems or don't see opportunities. Uh, for instance, in what I mentioned before, we got on air. I was in engineering consulting for a long time, and I looked at a market for twenty almost twenty years. And the, the opportunity opened up, the rare opportunity to open an office there and succeed. I had about three months to get my act together, hire staff, get a building and put it up and act quickly. That was uh, one of those moments where you just need, you need to see it, visualize it, capitalize it, take risk. One of the other ones, as I can see, is that uh, we didn't talk about, but I did beekeeping in Afghanistan as well. Everybody else was using European bees that as uh, we use the United States, I saw that was failing. So I took a look at what was happening there already and adopting that, which was the Asian honeybee, which ad adopted very well. It is now the, was the standard practice being taught in Afghanistan after I left. It's seeing those opportunities and looking at it with a fresh start rather than just the traditional approaches. It's the same with biochar, is that rather than taking the standard approaches on how to address soil carbon, et cetera, is taking a look at what are some other ways to approach ideas from a different view and then having the uh, ability to see that, the potential for it and the wherewithal to go forward and educate yourself, get your, yourself established as a leader before others come up, uh, well, while it's coming up so you can get yourself established before others. Jim, I love the idea of seeing opportunities where other people see problems. Thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Well, thank you very much, Roger. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.